On the morning of the third day, Emily woke up. In her hotel room, she looked at her face in the mirror and just wanted it to be over. She was on a mission to save her life, or at least to fix her life. Her life in which there had been a lot of chaos and too little stability, too much of some substances and not enough of some others. And her plan, it wasn't exactly her plan, it just kind of fell into her lap, but the plan to fix her life was that someone she knew needed a car full of drugs dip, driven across the country. All she had to do was get from the West Coast to the East Coast, and then she'd be paid enough money to take care of everything. She laughed as she told me this story, and it's a story I'm telling with her permission and without her real name. She laughed because, I guess in part, because it takes a certain kind of mindset to think like, aha, this is how I will get my life together when presented with a plan to run drugs across a continent. On the third day, she made it as far as Illinois, and that's where she got pulled over. She saw the lights in the rearview mirror, and she knew that was that. When the officer was standing at her open car window and looked toward the back seat, he asked, if I look through this car, will I find any drugs? And it occurred to her to say no, but instead time kind of slowing down here as we consider what might be the whole rest of her story. After this moment, she said, yes, you will. My own time in the belly of the deep is something I have preached and talked about here regularly, a time in a basement apartment after my life had been torn apart and I was bobbing and floating around without even the foresight to think that all had been lost. All I knew was this grief-filled moment and then this one and then this one. There was nothing to do. There was nothing to be done. When I learned the story of Jonah in Sunday school, there was no historical critical analysis, okay? This was a story that happened and it was a whale, not a big fish, and that a person lived inside a whale for three days was real, if also unusual. The message was that we should listen to God and do what's asked of us or else. I learned just a few years ago, and as a religious professional, I'm a little embarrassed by how recently this was, I, I learned a few years ago that Jewish congregations read the Jonah story every Yom Kippur. And I found this out because I was asked to be part of a storytelling service for you adults called the Vajona Monologues. Okay, so the Jonah story gets read in the afternoon of Yom Kippur after folks have been fasting from food and drink since sundown the night before. Praying and singing and at least in a few cases hearing punny stories as the hours tick by. By the time the Jonah story gets read on Yom Kippur, everyone is hungry and thirsty and tired. Some people think the story gets read at this particular time on this particular day because that's when everyone is at their most Jonah-ist, like ready to throw in the towel. There's nothing to be done. Some rabbis believe it's read in the afternoon on this particular day to remember that our lives can be saved too as another hungry, exhausted day draws to a close. There's still time. Some rabbis and, and some Christians too, of course, believe that like our text today, it's all about the whoosh, that God saw Jonah, like Maya said. You can run, but you can't hide. 
better than to get right with God in the first place and skip the unbelievable middle section with the fish. Some rabbis reflecting on Yom Kippur believe that people aren't supposed to identify with Jonah at all. After all, Jonah is the only prophet in the Bible who rebels against God. One of my study Bibles says, I love this language, he's the only prophet who takes practical steps to alter and forestall God's explicit instructions and desires. Instructions that God gave to Jonah in so many words. Plenty of prophets worry like, I'm not the person for this job. But Jonah is the only one who mounts active opposition to God. He's the only prophet who buys a ticket to do something else. Jonah is also the prophet who has the most success. When he gets to Nineveh in the end with seaweed in his hair, he preaches exactly one sentence that we're allowed to overhear and the entire enormously large city repents. And those people, some rabbis say, those people are the ones we're supposed to identify with, especially on a day of atonement, a day for repenting. But like, how are you gonna teach a bunch of six-year-olds about repentance? You know, you can't like build a cute nursery mural out of the Ninevites dressed great and small alike in their sackcloth. Sometimes it's just easier to go with the non-historical critical version the simple version, however unusual it is. It was dark in the belly of the fish, disorientingly dark. And at times it seemed like everything was still or at least steady. And at other times it was clear that they were moving. It was dizzying. The claustrophobia was overpowering and the smell was overpowering and the sensation was overpowering, surrounded by so much living flesh, thick to the touch, muscular, vascular. There was not room to move around. It was confinement. It was unreal. It could not be happening. It could not. How had this happened? There must come an end to it. There must, how long had it been? One way or another, it must end, right? We can't go on like this. Because even the things we've tried for our survival and for our coping aren't working. Because the things we've thought would save us haven't yet. The day is drawing to a close and the rabbis and Sunday school teachers and preaching said, God is listening when we finally pray. Isn't that right? This story isn't about Jonah. This story isn't about a whale. This story isn't about the Ninevites. This story is about you. Of course, when the officer looked through Emily's car, he found all the drugs. Emily went to prison and that's how she ended up living in Illinois. Clean and sober and expecting her second kid and telling her story through laughter. That's how her life got saved. My deliverance, being spat up onto the beach of the rest of my life, was not as clearly delineated as Jonah's or Emily's. I emerged from the deeps gradually and unevenly. But now I can't imagine my story any other way. I love the interpretation that says people ought to pray through Jonah's story at the end of a long, hard day, hungry and thirsty and exhausted. I love it even though I don't think that God listens to afternoon prayers harder than any other time of the day prayers. I love it even though I don't even believe that it's because of Jonah's prayer that God saved him. 
In fact, by the time he was in the belly of the beast, he was already saved. But by the time Emily saw the lights in the mirror, her salvation was at hand. She was delivered from chaos, tossing her to and fro into confinement, into close contact with other living flesh. By the time I was sitting alone in the basement, the truth was upon us and all that was next was drawing closer and closer. Sometimes as our poet says today, the monster itself is our deliverance. And while we are still dizzy with it, we are being saved. Our lives are being fixed even when this was definitely not our plan. This long expected, this unforeseen thing that has moved weightily about us, heading right for us as the terror builds, it may be our salvation. No matter what we've done or haven't done, no matter whether we've rebelled or tried to follow God, regardless of our terrible plans or attempts to foil God. And by God's mercy, we will be vomited up onto a shore where we can start again with kindness for others, imagining where they might have been, what they might have come through. By God's mercy, spluttering there, you will receive what you have been given because God desires to grant it to you, your own life and love and being given back to you for the sake of love.